Grace to you and peace from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now here we are. We found ourselves at the very moment we have been waiting for, celebrating the birth of Jesus. If you've been with us throughout this Advent season, you know that we have been unpacking our nativities, both literally taking out of the box the major characters, the individuals we know and love and cherish, and then also digging deeper into them, unpacking them in terms of who they are and what they mean for our lives of faith today as well. Now, you may be wondering if uh, this is already Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, depending on your, when you are watching. And if you joined us either by live stream or in person for one of our earlier Christmas Eve services, who else are we going to talk about? What else are we going to unpack today? Well, as you've already heard, what we're focusing in on is perhaps one of the most overlooked but underappreciated parts of your nativity set. In fact, it's the only inanimate object that makes it in as a required element of a nativity set. Now, you may be saying, well, well Pastor Micah, there, there, there's usually a stall or a stable or there might be a cave and sometimes there's stars and those are important parts of the nativity and they are and you could say they're all inanimate objects, but they come and they go and they change. And, and there's one thing that you can't ever have Christmas without. That is the manger. Let me show you why. If we go through the birth story as recorded by Luke, what you'll notice is on no less than three occasions, he makes it perfectly clear that Jesus was to be found wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Let's go back to the beginning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him, here it is, in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, in this first of these three occasions that the manger is mentioned by Luke, we see it as the culmination of the birth itself. But let's track just a little bit backwards and understand how we got to this precise moment. Luke, after having done magisterial research among all the first century eyewitnesses to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, sought to set down for us in an orderly fashion an account of everything that had transpired. Luke alone tells us of the role of Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the planet in that day, and the role of Herod, who will come back in the story later on, around the time of the visit of the Magi. These two men were perhaps the most powerful men that anyone in first century Galilee and Judea could have thought of. And it's during the time of their reign and under the influence of their decisions that the time 
that God had prepared well in advance. The time had fully come, and he sent forth his son, who was then to be found in a manger. You know, what's interesting is this precise registration, this census that was being taken, some scholars wonder, uh, why have we not found evidence of it in external sources? like so many other major historical events. And for some critics, maybe you've watched some Christmas specials on one of the uh, major news channels or on National Geographic, and they've used this to try to disprove the accuracy of the birth narrative of Jesus. There's always going to be skeptics, and there's already, always going to be uh, new discoveries that need to be made. But with pretty high confidence, we can say that while it doesn't show up yet in historical records outside of the Bible, uh, the reliability of Scripture is sufficient for us to say this is a real event. It actually happened. And here's one way that scholars think it may have come together. You see, Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire had a unique way in which they ruled over all the peoples they had conquered. As opposed to the Greeks and the Assyrians before them, who ruled in their own unique way, the Romans saw to it that local people could conduct themselves according to local customs, wherever that was possible. It was a major contributing factor to the so-called Pax Romanum, the Peace of Rome, which made them into the global superpower uh, that was present at this very moment. Caesar Augustus then very likely would have given Herod and those in the region of Judea a fair degree of autonomy to conduct the census, the registration, in whatever way they saw fit. And so in this case, what seems to have happened is that Herod saw this as a moment to gain favor with the people of Israel. And so when he invited them, or maybe better said commanded them, to participate in this census, he did so in a way not very Roman, but very, very Jewish. He had each of them go back to their hometowns to register in the place of birth of some of their greatest ancestors. And so in the case of Joseph, it would have been his great, 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 however many greats, grandfather, David himself. And as you may know, the hometown of David was none other than Bethlehem, the place long foretold through the prophet Micah as the location where the Savior of the world would be born. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are least among the clans of Judah, out of you shall come a Savior. So what we know from history is that this place was noted and set apart, this Bethlehem, as a place that had been chosen by God for this very purpose. And and the descendants of David would have treasured that and cherished that as part of their family history and identity. But by the time of Jesus and the time of Joseph and Mary, the descendants of David had fallen on hard times. There weren't very many of them. They were scattered pretty broadly, and they didn't have much to their name. According to some historians, Uh, the total possessions of the descendants of David at this time amounted to a few dozen acres of land equivalent to maybe a few thousand dollars of value in our day. It makes sense then that Joseph and Mary, they didn't come into palatial palaces or weren't welcomed by all of the trappings of royalty that had long faded from the family line and tree of David. Instead, he was one of only a few 
a few dozen, a few hundred perhaps, descended from David still living at that time, who crawled their way back to that hometown of Bethlehem to sign their name up as a descendant of David in that hometown. Now, you may also recall at this point in history, it had seemed that God had gone silent. Between the last prophets of the Old Testament and the first reckoning of a new era with the coming of the birth of Jesus, there was some 400 years of silence where it seemed like God had forgotten them. Not unlike a period of 400 years previous where they had been slaves in Egypt and they wondered if their God had forgotten them there as well. But just as in those days, God had listened to and remembered his people. So too in these days, he had as well. And when the time was precisely perfect, when Caesar Augustus, for his own reasons, sought to conduct a census of all of the known world, and when Herod, for his own reasons, chose to do that in the way that revived the hopes of the people of Israel, you can imagine all of them heading back to the hometowns reconnecting with their families and their friends who had been scattered for centuries. It was almost like the great days of the Old Testament era were finally coming back. And Joseph, proudly and courageously, saw to it to bring with him his betrothed wife, Mary, who was with child, although not his own, so that he might register this newborn child, this son, Jesus, the name the angel had given him to name this child. In that family registry in Bethlehem as his own adoptive son. It's in that moment in history. It's in that brokenness of humanity. It's in that quietness of a humble stable or a cattle shed. Wherever it was that this manger was to be found and our Savior was to be born, that we enter into today. Mary, as soon as they arrived in that place, the time came for her to give birth to her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in that manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, as the story unfolds, this manger comes back to the surface two more times. Continuing in Luke chapter 2, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. You know, there's not many times where the people of God get a glimpse into the glorious presence of God and of heaven. You may think, for example, of the time when Jacob was wandering away from his people, fleeing for his life, and he had a, a vision in his night, in his sleep at night, of the stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. You might think of Isaiah when he was given a glimpse of the throne room of God and he saw the glory of God filling the temple and the, and the seraphim that were, uh, were flying around him and the voices that were proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This ranks up there with them and may be the greatest of all of the glimpses into heaven. The angels filled the sky with their glory, with their power, with their light, and with their good news. 
And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is number two. The second time Luke draws our attention to this humble cattle stall and the food trough in which the Savior of the world was to be laid. Now, as the rest of the story goes, you know that the angels, after having departed, uh, sent the shepherds on a mission to track down and find this newborn king, and they did just that. And you could imagine their joy and anticipation as they stumbled into the silence of that space where the Savior of the world was born. When they went with haste, verse 16, and they found Mary and Joseph, they also found the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them, the prophecy of the angels in all of its fullness. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds then returned to their flocks and their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So now three times we've seen Luke draw our attention to this humble manger. Three times we've been reminded that our Savior was found there. And so it makes us ask the question, why would the God of the universe choose as his first place to lay his head down and sleep a manger? Or maybe another way to ask the question is, uh, if God could have been any one of the characters in the nativity story, which would he have chosen? Some of you, when asked that question, would say, I'd love to be a shepherd. Or, I'd love to be Joseph or the innkeeper. Some would love to be a sheep or a donkey or a, a camel, perhaps. A, a magi, maybe, to go tell the good news. Uh, I haven't heard anyone say they'd choose to be Jesus. That's a pretty high standard to, to aspire to. And I've also never heard anyone say they'd love to be the manger. But you could make the case that the God of the universe, not just there present in the Christ child, but the God of the universe who was creating this very moment, if he could choose any posture, any place, any role to have, he would choose the one at the very bottom, the lowliest, the most humble of all. For that's in fact what our God is doing in this very moment. The Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, has been focusing all of his energy and attention on this precise space in time, this place on the planet, in culmination of all of his promises and his dreams. He is now entering into our humanity in the most easily overlooked, perhaps soon to be forgotten way possible. He's born as a baby and then laid in this manger. The place, the plan, and the purpose of God, which had been long planned and prepared, now had taken place. God, our Savior and our Lord, has made himself low so that he might meet us in our lowest places, that he might find us in our brokenness, shame, and regret. And having taken upon himself every consequence for our sin, this sinless child, this spotless lamb, the Savior of the world, would proceed to live life 
rightly with God, with his parents, his siblings, and all of his friends, to live rightly in a way that we never could, so that he might die a death, so that we never would have to suffer for our own sins and suffer the ultimate penalty for them. Friends, why focus so much time and energy on a humble feeding trough, on a manger? That's not just because it's a favorite detail in the story. It's because it's the precise place, moment, and time where God brought to completion his plan of redemption for you. Friends, as you think about your Christmas celebrations, we hope and pray that as you remember the manger, that you would also remember the depths to which God would go for you, and then also the glory which was contained in that place and will one day be given to you. The glory of all the saints and angels, the glory of heaven, the glory of a world made perfect, the glory of God himself with us, Emmanuel. All because Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, has come for us and was found in a manger. May that newborn Christ child, that manger, that nativity scene fill you with joy once again this day and every day as you worship your newborn King. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto everlasting life. Amen.